that we will honor your goodness. And so, Father, today, as we celebrate your truth, your love, and your grace, I, I pray that you would show us, Lord, the next steps in our journey so that Christ can be magnified in us. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are uh, continuing our journey through the scripture on the Holy Spirit. And uh, if, if you've been with us, then you know that some of what we have learned about the Holy Spirit may be relatively surprising. And the reason is because most of what we know is based on the, the New Testament revelation of the Holy Spirit, where the, the Scripture describes that the Holy Spirit came when Christ ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit descending, descended. A gross simplification would be to say that when Christ finished his mission, he went up and the Holy Spirit came down to begin his mission. And the primary mission revealed in the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit came to point people to faith in Jesus, and then once they became believers, followers of God, he would guide them, he guides us to the righteous life that God envisions for all of us, which is an abundant, fruitful life here and eternal life after death. Those are just the basics of the Holy Spirit. That's what we know and believe because we are New Testament followers of Christ. But those basics are actually a far cry from what we have discovered about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It isn't that, it isn't that we couldn't know, it's that we choose, we have chosen to filter our understanding through a New Testament lens almost exclusively. So we've seen that he is introduced in the beginning, literally verse 2 of chapter 1 in the book of Genesis, as the ruach or the wind breath of God who was hovering over the waters, poised to make God's creative vision a reality. Okay, so God spoke, and then it was the Holy Spirit that brought order into that chaos, and in the process, he created a perfect environment for life on earth. And then when he formed us out of the dust of the ground, the wind breath of God was breathed into our nostrils, giving us life in God's image. Now, as, as we have explored the implications of being created in his image, we've learned a couple of highly significant things. First, we learned that we die when the spirit or the wind breath of God leaves our bodies. Second, we learned that before we die, the spirit of God within all of us gives us dignity and opportunity the Spirit of God within all of us gives us dignity and opportunity. It is a chance to, a chance to make God a God-honoring difference 
whether we acknowledge God or not. Okay, it's a chance. Everybody has a chance. Okay, now what, what do I mean by that? As the scripture teaches, every life is initiated and sustained by God's spirit. Okay, that life made in God's image has the potential for good because his spirit provides all of mankind with natural gifts and talents for bringing order to chaos, beauty to crudeness, and joy to sorrow. Everybody has a chance. Everyone created in God's image has the capacity to contribute. God made us, all of us, that way. Now, we know not everyone contributes, right? Why is that? Because of this little word we're not supposed to talk about in our culture, but because of sin, Sin distorts our ability to understand, appreciate, and seize the opportunity to contribute meaningfully. Now, now what is sin? Simply put, it is the desire to be boss, okay, to live life as we see fit, living life for our glory and our pleasure rather than living for God's glory and delight. But as we saw last week, Okay, surprisingly, some people, even some who don't believe in God and certainly don't believe in Jesus, recognize that there are some principles for living, principles worth denying ourselves for, that will leverage those gifts and talents that we all have to establish order, okay, joy, and beauty. So there are people who live for the greater good despite the fact that they do not believe in our Savior. Okay, and if, if you don't believe that, then I, I challenge you to read any book about World War II. Think about the sacrifice that people of all religions have made for our freedom. There are people who contribute to God's vision for peace and freedom that do not follow the one who set us free spiritually, who established the forgiveness of our sins. So, what these servants of the greater good may not realize or even be willing to acknowledge is that they are living by God's wisdom as spelled out in Scripture. Yet, though they won't acknowledge that, they are moral and disciplined. Okay, by and large, they treat people well, they practice forgiveness and generosity, faithfulness, loyalty, and integrity in relationships and finances. They, they may even fight oppression and injustice and advance the righteous causes of peace and freedom, of hope. What are they doing? Well, they're using the life hacks that God provided through his wisdom, to navigate their journey in such a way that they successfully contribute to the greater good. Now, because they don't believe, they don't have a personal relationship with God, and sadly, 
could spend eternity without God because faith in Jesus is the only way to God. But they, they do live a good life that makes the world a better place. Look, here's the bottom line. Because we are created in the image of God with natural gifts and talents that God designed to be used for the greater good, we all have potential. Because we all have the wind breath of God in us as long as we live, and because we all have the wisdom of God available to us, we can all make a difference. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, as Americans, we probably have the greatest shot at a good life that the world has ever known. Why? Think about this. Because we live in a country that was unapologetically founded on the Judeo-Christian worldview. That is our culture. Now, what does that mean? It means that our laws are rooted in God's wisdom. Truth is a part of our heritage. And as a people, we fundamentally respect the rule of law. Those are core values that are part of what it means to be an, an American. And it is all compatible with the way God created the world to work. And all those core values give us an opportunity to make the most of our days. No question about it. Now, we may be rapidly moving away from that foundation, and let me just say, if we keep moving in the wrong direction, we will pay for it by descending into chaos. That's what happens when you abandon the foundation of truth. But we don't have to. Okay, the wisdom of God has been revealed and we can return to it. And I pray we do because it is the foundation that gives us the best chance to know the freedom and peace that we were created to enjoy. It is a way of life that is available to all through God's wisdom and the presence of his life-animating spirit. Now, so far... The study of the Spirit through the Old Testament, we, we've seen that God has provided man with gifts and talents necessary to establish their lives and their nation on a firm footing. Now, what we've learned is for those who were obedient, he provided the help they needed through his Spirit. Okay, the, the Spirit would step in and top off their gifts and talents in, in the same way that we top off our gas tank so we can travel further on a trip, the Holy Spirit comes in and tops off the gifts and talents that he has already placed in the people he created so they can go far with his mission. They can go further with his vision for reality. But as we move through the Old Testament, something happens. There is a change, and the Spirit begins to reveal himself to God's chosen people in a way that is more aligned with what we see in the New Testament. He's not just working through what they already have. Now the Holy Spirit is going to give them something that they do not have. 
something that is vital to their success, but something they did not possess just by virtue of being made in God's image. Now, the change that we're going to talk about comes three generations after the Exodus and one generation after Moses passed the baton to Joshua and he led the children of Israel into the promised land. By the way, have you ever thought about why they call it the promised land? You, you know, that's a dumb question, isn't it? Because God promised it to them. That's why they call it the promised land. He, he made the promise. But I think we might understand the arrangement better if we called it the land of opportunity. See, the, the surprising and even dispiriting part to them and to us that while God is that while God was giving it to them, they had to take it from the people who already had it. It wasn't vacant. And those people weren't interested in giving it to them without a fight. Now you may wonder why the people had to go. Why did they have to displace the people that were already there? Well, the heart of the matter was that they would be a corrupting influence on the young nation that was finding its footing going God's way. Okay, the land was occupied and governed by a group of people who were pagans. They worshipped other gods. And in order for God's people to establish the life, life according to God's wisdom... The darkness had to be eradicated. The light had to flood in. It was essential. Now, you say, well, what, about, what if the people who occupied the land decided that they wanted to live according to God's word? Great. God was always open to them converting and conforming. But otherwise, they would have to go. Now, what we learn through the scripture is that it proved to be a long and difficult process. But as long as God's people showed faith and courage and commitment to God's way, they gained ground. Okay, they gained ground. Cooperating with God's vision and using the natural gifts and talents he gave them, they were gaining ground. But when they wavered, and they got sucked into the rebellious ways of the pagans around them, they struggled. Things didn't go as well. Now, it was in the midst of that struggle that the Spirit of God, for the first time, entered the scene, showing a different side to his ministry by providing something that was unnatural. And actually, it was supernatural. He stepped in and provided divine leadership and enabling power that was missing. It was causing them to scuffle. Now, the book of Judges is the story of that struggle. By the time of the Judges, the people had largely settled into the land. The initial invasion had been mostly, mostly successful, mostly but the pagan peoples were displaced but not destroyed. Okay, they, they moved out but not away. They neither forgave nor forgot, and they were determined to take back their land, holding it 
was a struggle. And Judges records the struggle. Now, to properly understand the book, we need to understand two things. One is stated at the beginning of the book, and the other is stated at the end. But both speak to the moral climate in Israel. Now, the book opens as 110-year-old Joshua is dying. Joshua is the one who led them into the promised land when the baton was passed from Moses to Joshua. Judges gives us this ominous fact about the world he was leaving behind. Judges chapter 2 verse 10 says, After that whole generation, Joshua and all of his contemporaries, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. A group of people grew up that knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So what what does that mean? When Joshua and his generation were gone, Israel no longer feared God and they completely lost their moral compass. Now, I, I, I want you to hear me say this. Generally speaking, the fear of God provides a moral compass. The idea that there is a way we should live and a reason we should live that way provides for us a north star, something to move towards. Now, what was the result of the loss of their moral compass? The author ends the book with this chilling observation about the moral climate that developed. Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. In those days, Israel, no king, no leader, no rule, no moral compass. And we shouldn't be surprised that everyone did exactly as they saw fit. What does that mean? It means, as, as we talked about a few weeks ago, what Abraham Lincoln said, some single mind must be master. It means that they didn't have one vision. There was no moral framework that compelled them to obedience. And so what happened, what happens when the people were not committed to the wisdom of God? They got caught up in being their own boss, which, remember, is the definition of sin. And they were all doing exactly what they wanted to do. Now, as we know... That means they were not using their natural gifts and talents for the greater good. And so, rather than enjoying God's order and peace in their nation, they were descending into chaos individually and corporately. It wasn't just one or two of them going the wrong way. 
They were all going the wrong way. And guess what happened? Those enemies who were committed to taking back what they thought was rightfully theirs, they took advantage of the chaos by attacking God's people at every turn. And a pattern was established that plays out over and over and over again in the book of Judges. In their sin, God removed the hedge of protection and Israel was oppressed by a foreign nation. Then they ultimately cry out to God for help. And what does God say? If you seek me, you will find me. If you turn toward me, I'll turn toward you. They cry to God for help. And God identifies a deliverer, a judge, they called him or her. Then the Spirit of God comes on the judge. And in the Spirit's power, the judge leads the fight against the enemies and delivers God's people. Israel celebrates. They enjoy peace and prosperity. But in their prosperity, they lapse back into sin. And once again, they are oppressed. And the whole cycle starts over again. The pattern was set by the first judge. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you want to read along with this story, in Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And I want you to see how the Spirit of God shows up to deliver the people of God. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God. You know, sometimes it's just good to pray, Lord, help me remember. Help me remember you. Help me remember who I am and whose I am. Don't let me forget. They forgot the Lord, their God. And serve the Bells and the Asherahs, two pagan gods. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishthayim. Can I try that again? I knew I was going to do that. I told him this morning when we were reading the scripture, I'm going to mess that up. Uh, into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Aram Naharayim, to whom the Israelites were subject. Now, listen to this, for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. How did he save them? The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushim Rishathiam, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel. He overpowered him, so the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And again, 
The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave them, gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over them. Now, do you, do you see what happens here? Working against the wisdom of God, things began to fall apart. And so God sent judgment. And why does God send judgment? Because God is not always interested in making it better, but he is always interested in making us better. And oftentimes difficulty makes us better. When we're cooperating with God being led by his spirit, as we sang earlier today, we, we may step into the fire, but it might be that we find God in the fire. And so hard times came. God sent that judgment in the form of an oppressor. And so what, what did the nation of Israel do at that time? Well, they, they do what you do when you're in trouble. You try to figure it out. You try to work through your predicament. They were doing it alone because they didn't remember their God. They forgot to remember. And after eight years of scuffling, think about that. God's chosen people. After eight years of scuffling, they finally said, you know, my dad used to tell me that when we got in trouble, we should pray. There's some story back there about being delivered from Israel. It was only 120 years earlier. But they didn't fear God. They didn't trust God. They finally decided to turn to God for help. And what happened? In response, God turned to Othniel. But Othniel didn't have the natural gifts and talents to lead them to victory alone. He needed help. What happened? The, the scripture says the spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now up to this time, what do we know about the Spirit of the Lord? The Spirit of the Lord was in everyone, giving gifts and talents, giving us the breath of life. Still true. But now something changes. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. It was different from anything we had seen before. He didn't top off Othniel's natural gifts and talents with a little more to help him go the distance. God literally selected this man and his spirit came upon him providing something different, something divine that was absolutely essential to the deliverance of God's children from oppression. The spirit of God came on him to do something for others, for the glory of God, that he couldn't do himself. 
And so through the enablement of the Spirit, Othniel overpowered that king, and he established peace for 40 years. 40 years. This was a new revelation of the Spirit of God. But in the book of Judges, Othniel's experience was not unique. The Spirit also came upon Gideon in chapter 6 and Judge Jephthah in chapter 11. And the scripture says it came powerfully on Samson three different times in, verses, in chapters 14 and 15. Why? Why? Because God's will was to protect his vision for Israel, for his people. And his spirit came upon the judges, enabling them to do the job of liberating God's people. Again, he wasn't just topping off what they already had. He was providing something that was missing. Faith, hope, and power. It was supernatural enabling. Now, what do we learn? Well, we learn that our understanding of the Spirit is now expanding. Okay, there's a different level that we get to when the Holy Spirit comes on us. And he comes on us and works through us because his mission is always to advance God's will. And sometimes he steps in and shows God, God's power through God's servants. That's what the Holy Spirit of God does. Second, we learn that there are times where natural gifts and talents will not produce the peace we long for. Sometimes, what we long for, we can't get for ourselves. Remember, Israel scuffled for eight years trying to get it figured out. Eight years. They were doing it themselves by using what God provided to them. But it wasn't enough. There are limits to how far we can go when we go alone. Third, I think we need to recognize that small compromises can lead to tremendous chaos and confusion. Just little things. Small compromises leading to chaos and confusion. I don't, I don't think the children of Israel started out going, you know, today, here's, here's what we're going to do today. We're just going to totally turn our back on this God thing. No, they, they drifted. They drifted further 
and further away. And as they did, they introduced chaos and confusion into their environment, and it made a way for the enemy, for the enemy to oppress them, to destroy what they were building with God. Fourth, I think without a doubt we learn that when you need help, you should ask right away. Why wait? The children of Israel waited eight years, probably believing that they could get themselves out of the mess they were in. We created these problems, and we can figure it out. But what they found out was their problems were bigger than their gifts and talents could solve. They couldn't handle the problem. They did have things to bring to bear, but they needed a divine touch. It was necessary for God to step in. See, the reality is there are some problems, some of our own making, that we experience that we can't solve on our own. We're making decisions that aren't consistent with God's revealed wisdom. And sin... That sin, the desire to be boss, has taken us further than we ever dreamed we would go. And in those moments, what we need to recognize, in that season, what we need to recognize is that God is longing for us to turn to him and ask for help. Eight years he waited. Finally, Israel turned to him, and he responded immediately by raising up a judge, deploying his Holy Spirit to provide what they needed to find freedom. I don't, I don't know what kind of oppression you experience. Maybe what the chains that bind you, if, if it's addiction, or just despair. But I know that our God is a liberator. That his vision is to set the captives free. And I know that his word teaches from beginning to end, when we turn to him, he responds. He delivers. That's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He draws us to faith in Jesus who sets all the captives free. That's why we sang about magnifying him this morning. And the Holy Spirit compels us to look at the cross. And he in the same way that he animates our life, he animates our spirits and graces us with faith in the good news of Jesus. 
We can't place our faith in Jesus without the work of the Holy Spirit. And so let let me just encourage you, if you're looking for a way out, if you're looking for peace and you're considering placing your faith in Jesus, then if you're at the point where you feel like you could decide, that's the Holy Spirit working in you. Don't put it off any longer. What are you waiting on? Trust God. Trust his leadership. And know his peace. When they asked, finally after eight years, God delivered. Finally, let me just encourage you not to allow your prosperity to compromise your piety. At times, things were good for the Israelites because of the enabling spirit of God. But every time, over and over again, the pattern was set. In their peace, they lost their passion. They lost their discipline. They no longer remembered God at the beginning of the day. They weren't reading his law or listening to it. They weren't praying. They weren't living by his wisdom. Their prosperity compromised their piety. They stopped fearing God And one day they woke up in chains. We live in the greatest country in the history of the world. More opportunities for freedom, more opportunities to live our lives, and in our prosperity, our piety has been compromised. And that that just isn't happening, or I should say that is happening collectively because it's happening individually. Don't let your prosperity compromise your piety. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing to us the truth about your great vision for our freedom and peace. And Lord, revealing what we can do to cooperate with that vision and experience your goodness. But Father, we know there's a limit to where we can go without your spirit and certainly, Lord, without your son. Father, I, I pray today that if there are any here that don't know you, there's anyone that's that's watching online that has chosen 
to say no to the good news of Jesus, the life-changing forgiveness that he offers. I pray, Lord, that today, by your spirit, you would lead them to faith, give them the courage to choose faith. Thank you for the possibility of freedom. And Lord, for those of us who have been set free, I pray that our spiritual and material prosperity would not compromise our passion for you. Lord, help us to remember your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your spirit that leads us to the life you have called us to live. And may we honor you by following his lead. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.